encourage you to turn your Bibles to Exodus 28 this morning. It'll be a few minutes before we read that, but I'd like you to have that in front of you. One of my conversation partners who've been working through uh, Exodus has been Dr. Phil Riken, and in his collection of writings and sermons, there was a subtitle to this. The subtitle was Saved for God's Glory. I think that's just a beautiful summary um, of what Exodus is all about, which we've been in now through the last, I think, year and a half since we started Exodus. And the Lord has heard the cries of His people. He has not abandoned them. He's been faithful to His promises to the patriarchs. So He delivers them from the slavery of Egypt, and now they are in this wilderness wandering, following their deliverer to the land of promise. And along the way, the Lord is showing them Um, They are slow learners. We're going to see just how slow of learners they are in the next couple of chapters. But what it means to be a saved people um, by the the gracious and merciful hand of God. And we've seen how this this deliverance, this wilderness wandering is really the paradigm for the Christian life. Um, Maybe you have a picture in your mind of of Moses, you know, holding his outstretched arm over the sea as the people are are delivered from the pursuing Egyptians. Well, we have been delivered by the outstretched arm of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ, delivered from our sin. Um, So now, saved by grace, we're in this wilderness wandering, this journey to the promised land, our eternal inheritance that is secure uh, in the Lord Jesus. Uh, So it's that salvation that we are shown over and over again in Exodus, as God provides for His people what they need to follow Him uh, faithfully and to worship Him. So this week is, is going to be no different in chapter 20, 28. I want to encourage you to read chapter 39. It really fits nicely with this, at least verses 1 through 31 today, sometime this week, um, where we find the actual carrying out of this, of this instruction. That's been our pattern as we've looked at the tabernacle, the instruction of the Lord to Moses and then the construction of Uh, by those uh, craftsmen that God enabled uh, to do that work. So let me pray for us, and then we will consider chapter 28. Father, we pray that you would show us the beauty of Christ, one who has given us his righteous robes. Lord, help us now to be attentive. We pray that you would speak through your word through frail, broken, scratchy voice. We trust your spirit to be at work as you have promised through your word to us. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, I really enjoyed uh, swimming at uh, my aunt and uncle's pool. Uh, It was a great thing for those Michigan summers. Uh, The hot tub that was also there was even better for the longer Michigan winters. And I can remember as, as a young boy uh, enjoying an afternoon of swimming, so my cousins and I decided that uh, we would take a break in the hot tub. And, uh, you know, for young boys, it gets kind of boring just sitting in a hot tub, so we thought, how can we spice this up a little bit? We, just, we, did, we determined to turn the hot tub into a bathtub, which is really easy, because all you have to do is remove your swimsuit and set it off to the side. So now we were in a bathtub. And uh, we said, well, that got boring after a few minutes, and so... We, you know, my mom and, and my aunt were sitting around the pool, and we said, let's see if we can get from the hot tub, the bathtub, to the pool under the mom radar. Well, so we tried it. Do you think it worked? didn't work. Um, so they kind of smiled and, and, and laughed and said, you know, at the silliness of, of their boys. Um, but I remember how 
uh, how strange it felt when I got out of that hot tub. And I, I could move pretty quick as a kid. Let me tell you, I moved quickly from the hot tub to the pool because it was awkward. It was strange. I was exposed. And, and I think you know, we, we could, this, this resonates with all of us. We've all had experience like this, right? Kind of that locker room experience, maybe as, as a younger child or a little bit older, where we've felt exposed, the shame that comes with that. I think it's, it's not unlike our first parents in the garden. After they disobey God's clear instruction, they, they look at one another and something is different. They feel shame. They're seeing the rest of the world differently, and so they're, they're running for the fig leaves to hide themselves. They, they want to be covered. There's a need to be covered. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about the disease of sin and how, how this sin has infected us and must be washed from us. And this morning, we're, we're looking at a slightly different angle. We see how the light of God's truth and the glory of God exposes us. Sin brings guilt and the shame we carry because of that guilt. So we need to be covered. We want covering when our guilt is exposed. So let's be reminded that this covering is a good thing in a world that is tainted and stained and dirtied by sin. God even provides covering for Adam and Eve in the garden to cover their shame before Him, before each other. So to cast off all covering... To feel little or no shame really is to minimize or to misunderstand the guilt that our sin brings before God and before others. Even think of the roots of modesty we find right here at the beginning of the story. Humanity has been made for unashamed nakedness and joy before God. And our longing remains for that unashamed spousal affection of Jesus, but we're not there yet. Because of our rebellion against God's design, because against His good word to us, that covering now is a part of the story. That's the theme we're going to see here, chapter 28, where God commands special coverings be given to the priest, to stand before the Lord, to minister, to sacrifice before Him. The people needed to be covered. They need to be robed in that appropriate attire. So these garments are going to tell us some things about the priests, the kind of priests uh, that the people need, that we need. The priests are, are chosen to serve the Lord. They're chosen to represent His people. And so there's the dress code that goes with it. I'm going to read the first five verses, uh, which summarize uh, what the rest of the chapter really expands on. We're going to see the, the coverings, the dress of the Old Testament priests, and how it shows us the dress of our New Testament high priest. Then bring near to you Aaron and your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Itamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So the Lord chooses specific men 
uh, to serve him as priests. And we heard three times just in those verses that they were to serve him first and foremost. I mean, they're going to represent the people. That's part of their responsibility. But above all, it is service to the Lord God who is to dwell in their midst. When you think about this, it would seem that that because of such a weighty responsibility, because who's going to stand in the presence of the cherubim? Who's going to offer the sacrifices? Who's going to confess on the part of the people? That's some pretty weighty qualifications. Pretty significant responsibility. Surely, you know, this will be the, the, the men who are the highest qualified. Maybe even angels. Angels would probably fit well in this role, don't you think? But who does God choose? He chooses Aaron from the tribe of Levi, Aaron's sons as the priests. There's there's nothing terribly significant about that. The Levites are not a holier tribe than the other tribes. They're, They're ordinary men who are not immune in any way to the need for covering, and immune from, from sin. And God knows this, and yet He chooses to use them to serve in this way. Because they know the people. They know what the people are facing. They can share with them in the need for sacrifice. Hebrews 5, we read this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. So Aaron and his sons are from among the people. They can identify with the people. I think how the Lord still uses ordinary men, ordinary women to serve him in all of their sinfulness. We minister among them. I mean, Paul says this of himself, who he acknowledged himself to be the chief of sinners. But he said he was also appointed to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Think about the pastors today. Pastors, they're not not making sacrifices, at least on the animal, on the altar sense. But they're interceding. They're going to the Lord continually on behalf of the people. Your pastor, the leadership uh, in the church should be acting in a priestly way. Dealing gently, coming alongside uh, you and others in the church. Because they themselves know just how filthy and stained they are by sin. They know how much in need they are of a covering. So the priests came from among the people, yet even even as we read this, this description, we've come to expect something by now of the tabernacle, those who administer in the tabernacle in this palace of God in their midst, that these garments are not your ordinary run-of-the-mill, everybody's-got-one sort of a thing. Uh, this, is, uh, this is extraordinary, just like the, the tabernacle, the, the, the furnishings, the courtyard, um, elaborate, ornate. In fact, we just read even in those verses, the same material that was used in the tent and making the... the, the <coughs> The, the, the linens and the inside of that tabernacle is the same as the garments here for the priests. The message there is pretty clear. The priests belong with the tabernacle. They are set apart uh, to serve in this way. Set apart to the king in his palace to serve him. In the ancient world, the, 
the king was the most elaborately adorned. He wore the most expensive clothes. There was no mistaking who it was um, that was serving the king. If you've ever been down to the old mill down there in Lakewood, uh, just a beautiful place uh, to walk around, to sit, enjoy the, the flowers and the water that's there. And I think every time I've been down to the old mill, almost every time, uh, I've seen a guy wearing a tux or a suit uh, or a gal in the white dress or several gals uh, in matching dresses. And you know, There's no mistaking why it is they are there. It's a beautiful place to take pictures, family pictures, senior pictures, wedding pictures. Absolutely no mistake. No mistake among the Israelites who the priests served, what they were there for when they were dressed uh, in this way. It says these are distinct garments. Uh, it says for glory and for beauty. We'll read that same phrase at the end of the chapter in verse 40, that kavod, the glory that's used. It's used so often in the Scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, to describe the Lord. Heavens declare the glory of God. Lift up your head, O, o gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So now, the Lord is glorious, yet here it's used to describe what these garments are to be used for. To enter into the glorious presence, the holy space of the Lord would require glory and beauty. I think of how God provided all of these materials, all these treasures from the Egyptians to His people. They all belong to God anyway. So He arranged for the, you know, the swapping of hands from the Egyptians to the Israelites, and now He's giving instructions on how to use these beautiful things in worship to Him. Beautiful things now crafted to show the beauty of the one that they belong to. God Himself is beautiful. His, his beauty, His holiness, His majesty, His splendor, it all is combined to show forth His glory. So the glory and beauty of these garments really set the priests apart for the glorious and beautiful one. We can just pause here for a second. We probably need more than a second to think through this. I'm just acknowledging the great beauty that God has given us. The great beauty in this world around us. I, mean, I know it's stained, I know it's, it's tainted by sin, but as image bearers, we can and we should appreciate the beautiful. We, we are about beautification as a way of worship, awakening in ourselves and in others the beauty of God and our Creator. And I hope you can enjoy some of that this summer. Beauty that God has made, just the you know, little snapshots that speak of His uh, ultimate beauty. It's, it's, it's outside, but it's also inside among us. And we know the beauty doesn't last. We know it's, it's temporal, but it still serves a lot of really important purposes in our lives. This beautiful is, uh, the beautiful is very pleasing to our senses uh, that God's given us. Smell, sound, uh, sight. Um, it shows us that we are finite creatures. And the, the beauty that we take in or the beauty that we bring about it fades on this journey on this wilderness wandering but let's be about beautification for the glory of God you know, it may be an art form, it may be in, in music, it may be in a particular trade or craft 
that you have, study that enables you to, to recover or reclaim the beautiful. This is what blesses others. It honors God, who is himself the source of all that is beautiful. So the priests of the Old Testament, they came from among the people. They could identify with them, and yet they were distinct from them. Can you see our New Testament high priest in this shadow? The divine word became flesh, tabernacled among us. Jesus took on flesh. He had to be human like us in every way to be the high priest that we need. Hebrews 2 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. And then go ahead to uh, verse 17, Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus can, can sympathize. He can empathize with us. He identifies with us. Not in our sin, but in our humanity and all the temptations that come with that, whether male or female. He knows. He can help us. He deals gently with us. So you can say of Jesus at any time, any place, He, he knows me. He knows where I am. He knows what I'm going through and no one else seems to know or understand. That's your merciful and faithful high priest. He's like us. But like the priests in these garments, he's not like us. He's distinct from us. Hebrews 7, 26. Says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. But being without sin, Jesus as the Son of God, he has no shame to cover. No need for him to, to wear elaborate robes. He was robed in glory and beauty and holiness even as he took on that physical covering in the flesh. That's the priest we need. We need a priest who is entirely like us and entirely not like us. To sympathize and to save. And that's what brings us into uh, some more details of this garment. First piece described here is the ephod kind of a long, elaborate vest, usually worn over top of uh, the tunic or, or a robe. Let me start reading again at verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. This can be hard for us to picture. There's some material that gives us some, some, uh, some help in this and picturing what this may have looked like. Uh, but this was, this was a really ornate and colorful vest. Um, and 
It's interesting, as it's made for glory and for beauty, it's, it's symbolically representing God before the people. And I think, what do, what do human beings typically do with those things that represent God? Um, they'll typically venerate them. They'll typically raise them to a level of worship, which is exactly what we see happening in Israel's history. Places like Judges 6, the Judges 17 and 18, where ephods are made, likely modeled after the one that we've just read about. And then they're, they're elevated, they're used as to represent the divine and, and, and really idolized among the people. But this is, a, this is an important part of the dress. And notice what's emphasized in the instruction, verses 9 through, uh, 9 through 14. It's, it's the two onyx stones on the shoulders. Names of the tribes, half on one stone, half on the other engraved. So not just, you know, not just the Sharpie marker name tags. This is... These are engraved as signets. Signets needed to be pressed in deep into the, into the, uh, the mud or the clay so that the grooves could be seen. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. The Lord God is sovereign over all. He doesn't need these names written here to remember His people. He doesn't forget their names. But it's a language that we understand. It tells us that he does remember. That he knows them by name. The people can be assured of this as they watch the high priest, their representative, go into the presence of God. I mean, where the priest goes, all the people are going. Literally, on his shoulder, on that, on that vest. And on his chest. Now, verses 15 through 30 describe this breast piece made of the same uh, beautiful yarn and linen. It had 12 precious stones um, lining on the front of this um, breast piece, which was made like a, a pocket to hold uh, this Urim and, and Thummim, which was uh, used to discern God's purpose, His judgments for the people. So there the people are, on the shoulder and over the heart of this priest who intercedes for them, bearing the judgment of the people um, on his heart before the Lord. Verse 30. And the robe or the tunic is under the ephod. It's described. 31 through 35. I'll read these verses. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening. Like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Pomegranates for beauty. Um, supposedly they, they had a very lovely flower. They would use the, the, the... There was a desirable fruit in the ancient world. They would use it to sweeten things. Um, these pomegranates are are alternated with these golden bells. The high priest would not only be seen, but he would be heard. Heard by the people and heard by the Lord. He couldn't just go into the tent casually. His presence was to be announced by these bells. I mean, we like it when someone rings a doorbell, right? Or knocks on the door before just coming into our house. Um, so it is with the Lord's palace. It shows a dignity and honor, privacy, given to the Lord. Uh, Nathaniel and I went to a ceremony this last week, a small ceremony, but there was a dress code. Um, so we had to think through what summer business casual would look like. 
And they wouldn't have tossed us out of this ceremony had we not met that dress code. But not so the priests. Not so at the tabernacle. This covering, this dress code with its golden bells was strictly enforced under the pain of death. Which sounds pretty harsh until we consider the holiness and the purity of the one in which they are serving and the the unholiness and impurity of the ones they represent. The high priest wore um, wore these uh, bells and these palm granites around the hem. He also wore this golden plate on his head as part of the turban. On this plate, the phrase, Holy is the Lord. Verse 36 through 38. He used to, to bear the guilt of the people, to offer acceptable sacrifice, and he must be holy. Not, not just with an inscription of gold. Holiness inscribed on his heart. Again, the outward is to move the inward. Let's keep that in mind. Later in Zechariah 14, these same words are used to describe the great day of the Lord. And all those who would submit to his reign, who desire to worship him, who gather in that holy city. And here's what it says. On that day there, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. So it's not just a ritual, not just ceremonial administrative holiness but a ritual, a golden inscription on the turban to show what was truly needed before the Lord. Cleanness, holiness of heart. Uh, I almost titled the sermon Holy Underwear, but I changed uh, my mind on that. Uh, but that's what we find in verses 42 to 43. Aaron's sons did not, uh, they did not have the full dress as Aaron did as the high priest, but they still had very similar pieces, ephah, the breast piece, but they all had linen underwear to cover their shame. Remember in chapter 20? They were offering the sacrifices up on the, the stone altar. They said you, you, can't, you can't make steps to climb and offer these sacrifices lest you be exposed before the Lord who is holy. These garments show us that the Lord, He knows His people by name. The guilt and shame of their sin is being symbolically removed and carried by the high priest. And what is symbolic here is reality in the Lord Jesus. So when God the Father looks upon His Son, He remembers. He sees us. He sees every name of those who are united to Christ by faith. He sees those stones fixed upon the, upon the, the breastplate of Jesus, as it were, chosen and precious to Him. You go to 1 Peter chapter 2. He knows us by name. Jesus himself shares just this personal knowledge in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Brothers and sisters, we can be assured of God's love, of his, of his care, of his compassion, of his concern. Because we're always before him. He knows us by name. Hebrews chapter 10, I won't read all these verses again, but it tells us that Jesus accomplished what the Old Testament priest could never do, what he could never accomplish, opening the way for us into the holy presence of God through his flesh. You know, there's some little helpful details here that we find in the Gospels that help us understand Jesus in this way as our high priest. In John chapter 19, 
the apostle shares that the white linen tunic that Jesus wore was one piece. It was seamless like the tunic of the high priest in the Old Testament. That's why the guards cast lots for it, because they didn't want to, to tear that garment. And as they mocked Jesus and ridiculed him, they placed that crown of thorns on his head, and they, remember, they, they placed a robe of purple around him. Just think of the irony of that. I mean, here is, is Jesus. This, the high priest was adorned with blue and purple and scarlet yarn. We just read that, Exodus 28. And Jesus is robed in royalty, adorned as the king and high priest he truly is, even as they mock and jeer, hit him with their fists. Because of Christ's high priestly service and sacrifice, we, are, we will not die for the guilt of our sin. Our high priest has taken our guilt, he's taken the burden of our sin upon himself. Again, this is 1 Peter 2. I think of the great exchange that's happening here. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus is robed in our sin and we are robed in His righteousness. In his book, uh, The Priest with the Dirty Clothes, highly recommend it to you, Dr. R.C. Sproul. But he tells of this beautiful exchange from Zechariah chapter 3. And in that chapter, the prophet, Zechariah, he has a vision. He sees Joshua as the high priest and he's dressed in just filthy garments. And Satan is right there accusing him. We know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It doesn't tell us exactly what Satan was accusing the high priest of, but you can probably guess. Look at you. You're filthy. How can you, how can you stand in the presence of God this way? What you've done, what you've said, where you've been, this is gross. And the Lord turns to Satan and he says, shut your mouth. Take that garment off. Remove the filthy garments from him. And the angel of the Lord turns to the high priest. He says, I have taken your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. Clean turban is put on his head. Filthy, filthy robes of sin for the clean and pure garments of God. Church family, we must see ourselves the way God sees us in Christ. When, when He sees us, He sees the, the perfect and finely adorned robes of Jesus, the high priest. I mean, that may be the most important thing you need to take from this all morning long, is those words, that, that, G, that in Jesus you are rightly dressed before the King of glory. He's pleased and delights in your beautiful robes. I mean, we know there's, there's dirt, there's ugliness of sin underneath. By His grace, that's being, being washed and rooted out of us, but it's done in His presence and before the smile on His face. I mean, it's so easy with the temptations we face every day to want to, to, want to pick up that burden again, to want to, to put the filthy old rags of the old man back on. The rags of fear, the rags of greed, the rags of, of lust and envy. So we, let's look at the mirror of the gospel, the mirror of God's word. It says, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then as a priesthood of believers, we, 
we're offering this sacrifice of praise every day. Our very lives, our work, our, our play is to show forth the beauty and splendor of the Lord. This priesthood also looks for ways to intercede for others. To really help carry that burden of debt. We intercede for one another in prayers. We've done this morning. But what could we do? And this is more of a question. What could we do to, to put ourselves in the shoes of others? In a sense, taking their name, as the priest would take the names before the Lord. How can we take the names of our brothers and sisters, put ourselves in their shoes, and relieve the burden, the guilt that may be there? I mean, it's often messy. This is the risky part. The Old Testament priest could die. Jesus did. So we could have an audience with the king and intercede without fear. The shame of our sin must be covered. It was needed in the garden, needed by the priests, needed um, uh, for us. People accepted because the priest was accepted. I think all those who are united to Christ by faith have had the full acceptance with God. We're sons and daughters of the King, and He invites us to come to Him, to go straight, straight to the throne room of heaven. The dress code has been met. We don the royal robes of Christ. So go to Him, go to the King, spend time with Him in prayer, meditation on His Word, in song, bask in the beauty of His holiness. We're going to go to the table now to celebrate this great exchange and the union that we have with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, how can we thank you for the garments that you have given to us, for robing us in the righteousness of Christ? Lord, we thank you that you've not left us exposed with our shame, but you have come to us Jesus, fully like us and entirely unlike us, that we can have an audience with you. Lord, for this we are so grateful. Continue to work this truth into our hearts and our minds that we would truly delight in our union with Jesus and who we are before your face and walk in obedience because of this. Lord, we thank you for the details that you give us of this of these garments that show us the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.